When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Jung had you know, already in the, with a the break from Freud realized somehow for himself, and he expresses this in Memories to Reflection, that he doesn't live any longer in the Christian myth. He, he, he couldn't see himself really as a Christian, not in the way that Christianity had been presented to him. So he says somewhere also, you know, I know it's the truth, but I need the truth in a new form. The Medicine Path podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I welcome Berlin-based Jungian analyst and creator of the Psychology and the Cross podcast, Jakub Lisensky. On his podcast, Jakub has been speaking with prominent Jungians and Christian theologians about the intersections of psychology and religion, so I thought he'd be a great person to have on to talk about Jung's relationship to Christianity. There are a number of texts mentioned throughout our conversation, so I asked Jakob to supply a reading list for those of you who want to dig a little deeper into the various topics we discuss, and you can find it in the show notes. You can also check out Jakob's excellent podcast by visiting cross.center, that's C-R-O-S-S dot C-E-N-T-E-R. Before we get to our conversation, I just want to take a moment to thank the patrons who support this podcast by becoming Patreon subscribers, some of whom have been supporting me since I started this thing four and a half years ago. It's because of them that I'm able to keep this podcast wholly independent and freely available. So a big thank you to my super patrons Kathleen, Robin, Frederick, Tucker, and Rebecca, and everyone else that's come on board in the last few months. I really, really appreciate your support. 
And if you'd like to become a monthly supporter, please visit patreon.com forward slash medicine path, where memberships start at just $3 a month and give you access to early release of episodes, the full podcast archives, hours of yoga practice resources, and free downloads of all my books. At a time when the podcast space is quickly being taken over by corporate media networks and celebrity hosts, it's important to support small independent creators like myself, especially if you appreciate the kind of conversations we have here, which I hope are particularly intimate, deep, and engaging. The Medicine Path is a labor of love, but because I'm a one-man show, it does take a great deal of time and energy to produce each and every episode. So if you can afford even a contribution of 5 or $10 a month, it's greatly appreciated. Other ways you can help support the podcast are to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, subscribe to the Medicine Path YouTube channel, where I post videos of most of the conversations, and by sharing this podcast with your friends or social media networks. Okay, that's all for now. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Jakob Lusensky on The Medicine Path. I'm here with uh, Jakob Lusensky, calling in from Berlin, but as I just found out, uh, he's um, Swedish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long have you been in Germany? I've been... Nine years now in Berlin. Uh, before this, I was in, in Zurich in Switzerland for the training, in union training. But yeah, I'm born and raised in Sweden, outside of Gothenburg on the West Coast. Mm. Yeah, I've been listening to your podcast, Psychology and the Cross and uh, the Secular Christ, the series that you've done with Sean McGrath, who I've also had on the podcast since being introduced to his work through your work. And uh, it's been really great. I think um, some of the conversations you've had have come to me at just the right time as I've been wrestling with the the role and uh, place for Christianity in my own life. And uh, for me, um, Jung has been the person I can relate to most in terms of how his uh, quest for meaning and wholeness went for him and reckoning with his kind of spiritual inheritance of Christianity and how he, uh, he worked that out. Um, so he's, uh, he feels like a bit like a spiritual godfather in terms of uh, my own journey in many ways. So I'm grateful to the work that you've done in bringing some of that to light for me. And uh, some of the people you've had on have had, a, I think, a really interesting perspective on Jung and Christianity. So starting with some gratitude and appreciation. Thank you. Thank you. Glad that you like it and that you follow it. Yeah. Well, um, just maybe if you could tell people a little bit about yourself, give them some background. And uh, I would love to hear also what inspired you to begin that podcast series, Psychology and the Cross. Hmm. Well, yeah, so I live in Berlin and I work as a union analyst. I live here with my family. Um, yeah, seeing patients four days uh, a week. And then I have tried to have one day a week for writing and for the podcast and for research. So that doesn't always work, but that's the setup I try to sort of 
platform. I meet people in person in Berlin and I also do some online work, you know, especially after COVID that has become more common. Also, since I'm Swedish, there's up in, in, up in the north up here, there's, there's not many unions. There's actually like a handful. So I also get the, the opportunity to work with people who find me online, who might sit in a small village somewhere up north and uh, mm. yeah, want to connect with the therapist to have a little bit of a different uh, perspective on things. So that's, yeah, that's what I'm, uh, how I spend my, my time. And the podcast, uh, I, was, I was struggling and, and, and wrestling and, you know, trying to uh, come to terms with uh, Christianity. You know, it's been a process, for, a long process, but I would say, especially the last seven, eight years. Uh, and yeah, that was a very private process. It was a lot of reading. It was a lot of... Uh, uh, suffering a lot of uh, meditation and prayer and yeah you name it trying to yeah trying to make sense trying to find my path and uh, yeah I guess I started to feel also very isolated with my questions and I started to feel like it, yeah it, yeah I needed someone to talk to <laughs> and uh, I thought that maybe there would be why, why don't I just contact those people that I anyway read and have some sort of conversation within my head. So I started with someone that I sort of knew a little bit, Murray Stein, because he had been my teacher down in Zurich mm. and reached out to him and asked him if he wanted to have a conversation with me. And uh, yeah, from there, you know, I've been really just trying to follow what I read or, you know, what I, yeah, what, what I wrestle with and, and trying to find uh, people who spent more time with that and, uh, and yeah, opening up for, for a conversation uh, about matters that lies very close to my heart. So yeah, it was really a private sort of research initiative, I guess you could say, and, and it still is. And I try not to be too ambitious, you know, trying to stay close to, to uh, yeah, what feels right. But uh, yeah, it's been a year and a half, so it's not so long time, but it's it's been good for me. And it's been nice to get some air, you know, and have a conversations around, uh, yeah, matters that, yeah, that, that means that, yeah, that are very important to myself. And it's really great also to, to notice that other people like yourself, you know, are also engaging in this. Uh, I find that uh, I didn't know, and I'm really happy to, to engage with people. Maybe just shortly, I was down in, in Zurich yeah, uh, last week and, and, and did a lecture on, on, on the Christianity of, of, of Sigi Jung and, I was really, really happy to to see also there that there's an interest in these questions and uh, yeah, the question of religion and its relationship to to psychology and specifically then Christianity's roles in in the union project. So I was surprised by that and happily so. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I hear you in terms of feeling alone with some of these questions. Uh, and then, yeah, certainly reaching out and finding books and lectures, um, looking for other people who have wrestled with these things for longer. And um, what was it about, like, what made you want to share this publicly through the podcast? Hmm. Well, I think, you know, in a way, you know, to make it a podcast and make it public, I guess I made myself accountable in a different way. 
to to certain you know reading to certain studying to certain you know uh, yeah rigorousness in regards to how I should you know approach these matters I think I need maybe some accountability as well and I think it's been helping me with that but it was a, it took a long time because I'm uh, yeah I'm uh, how should I say yeah I think this engaging with the public is something that's very sensitive uh, although it's on a very small little turf you know it's not that many people but yeah, it's something that's very sensitive. I think it's also very sensitive when you work as an analyst. You know, you want to. Yeah, I think it's it's. Yeah, we need to keep keep it privacy. So I I was thinking a lot about it, but I think it was mostly about the accountability and sort of uh, having to um, yeah step up or step in. Mm-hmm. I I think uh, that's one of the things I appreciate about the way you produce the podcast is that you don't center your own voice so much. Often you'll, I think, edit yourself completely out of the conversation. Um, you really put the person you're interviewing front and center. Uh, so it's not so much about your uh, opinion or perspective. Um, and I appreciate that because it allows me to kind of be the other half of that conversation in a way. Mm. Uh, and not just kind of like a fly on the wall listening to you talk with someone else. So. Um, was a part of it, though, uh, maybe unconsciously reaching out and trying to find the others? Mm. The, the others? Yeah, like people like me, other people who are wrestling with some of these uh, tensions. Yeah, I think it could very much be so. I mean, at least that's been you know, a very positive consequence you know i've been also looking forward to speak to you and i also been listening to some of your conversations that you had and so yeah i have a sense that you know yeah that this early days for for something interesting you know that is sort of growing within this field that you and i are exploring in our respective ways maybe just a short note also on this uh, uh, my role in the podcast I mean it's, it's nice and interesting to get that feedback because I, I don't get that much feedback about such sort of technicalities or sort of frame and such but yeah I think it also lies in the nature of maybe my my work that I, I more listen you know than uh, speak not to say that I'm a psychoanalyst who just listens and mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, but I'm definitely leaning more towards you know yeah, the beauty of giving a person a lot of space to, uh, to to let things be born. Yeah, some of the feedback that I've gotten, uh, I never thought of myself as a broadcaster or interviewer or anything like that. Like very much like you, I was uh, exploring certain uh, topics in my own journey. And then um, I thought, well, this is a great way to get some one-on-one time with some of the teachers who I'm interested in. Um, And I thought as an act of service for that, to compensate for that selfishness, I thought, well, I'll share it because if I'm thinking about these things, wrestling with these issues, there has to be someone else out there. And I know uh, that I would appreciate hearing these kind of conversations. So for me, maybe it was a way to, payback uh for mm. you know taking people's time and <laughs> so selfishly uh and it's proven to be just um something that i never could have imagined as a way to connect with um other people out there who are looking at things in a different way or ex- trying to find their own way through life and exploring different pathways and um yeah so it's been 
It's been wonderful. So it's it's great to meet you too as a kind of colleague in this work as mm. well. Well, it's a very, I just want to say, it's, it's such an intimate, it can be such an intimate medium. And the way that people listen to podcasts almost religiously today, it's uh, it's quite something you know, to be to be a part of, of someone's life in that way. And it also, I mean, just the way we listen to podcasts, I find it a very interesting medium for this, for exploring this type of uh, intimate, you know, uh, yeah, material. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I thought it would be great to have you on because uh, you, I think, are very well positioned to offer us an overview of Jung's dealings with Christianity uh, in his life and work. Uh, because it's something you've been exploring. And um, also because of your recent presentation, which you were kind enough to send me ahead of time, I think uh, gives us a, a good kind of framework for this overview. And so let's uh, maybe begin just simply with uh, Jung's own religious background, which um, some people who haven't read too much Jung might not be aware of. Hmm. Yeah. Let's start there. Uh, yeah, Jung was from a Protestant Reformed tradition. So his father was a pastor. His uh, maternal grandfather was a pastor. Supposedly, he had six uncles who were pastors, and they were all in the Protestant Reformed Church in Switzerland. And that's the Protestant Reformed Church that built on uh, Zwingli, who was the sort of great reformer, like in the days in, in Switzerland. So. He was steeped in, in Christianity and in a Protestant form of it. And yeah, just on, on that, I mean, yeah, many people uh, who come into a Jungian analysis, who come in contact with Jung, myself included, uh, didn't know much about Jung's Christian background uh, at the beginning, or maybe didn't care so much about it. But yeah, as when you start to look at uh, his uh, life and his project uh, in more depth, I say that it's uh, yeah, it's it's almost everywhere. In most of his works, you know, he brings in the tradition of Christianity, and it's something that he he, he truly wrestles with. But it's with a with it's with a Protestant Reformed tradition, uh, and uh, yeah, a lot of uh, Jung's uh, handling with with that uh, and difficulties with that comes also from the experiences he had as a child because. He was a very uh, yeah, sensitive child, or he was a very visionary child, or he was a very uh, open child who had a lot of experiences, uh, dreams, uh, visions, and such. And uh, so I think you know we could say that Jung experienced you know traditional Christianity. That was what he heard from his father when he preached, or what he heard when he his father discussed with his uncles theological matters. But he then also had himself experiences that uh, I guess we could call numinous experiences that uh, he had difficulties with, you know, uh, placing within the framework of the traditional Christianity around Jesus Christ and, you know, the focus of, of the Christianity of the time. And now we're done talking 1875, that's when he was born uh, in Basel, in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well... Maybe you could share uh, one of those key visions that he had when he was young. There's also the mm -hmm. event of his communion, but I think the 
I think you know what vision I'm talking yeah. about because <laughs> you you actually uh, you pulled that out as an excerpt for your podcast. It's such a kind of pivotal moment in Jung's life and relationship with the church, and I think the image is just uh, remarkable. Can you talk yeah. about that early vision? Absolutely. Well, yeah, we're both smiling a bit because it is a particular one and it, it's an interesting one. Uh, so it's, uh, and, and Jung says himself in Memory Streams Reflection in that uh, biography that was written by Angela Jaffe and uh, himself, that, you know, that his whole childhood can be understood, you know, through this event, that this is somehow, you know, this formed his whole childhood and he brought it up at the end of his life. So it, it also informed his whole, I would say, life and his whole psychological project. So it's not a vision to, although it's content, it's it's a vision one can laugh to, but it's all laugh at, but it's it, it has a, had a deep, deep importance for, for Jung. And I think it has also for us, if we want to understand what what Jung was wrestling with in with his analytical psychology and Christianity. So it's Jung, Sigi uh, Jung, uh, 11 or 12 years old in Basel and it's a summer day and he's walking uh, to the, towards the big square in the city where the big cathedral is in Basel, still standing there today. And somehow Jung says in, in Memory Streams Reflection that yeah, it's a beautiful day, God is good, everything is beautiful. And he looks at the big cathedral and he feels that a, an image wants to come to him or a thought wants to come to him, but he feels like this image or this thought is, it, it, it's something he cannot allow. He feels like something wants to come to him that it's, you know, he cannot express this. So he starts to fight with himself, uh, like trying to repress what wants to come to life. He goes home to his mother, his mother is asking him if he's sick, but he doesn't share anything with his mother. And supposedly he, he struggles with with this allowing this vision or this image to come to life. And he feels like it's something terrible, you know? And, and then he says, I need to think this through before I allow this image to come to surface. Why would God want, why would God want me to uh, think something that I don't want to think, do something that I don't want to do? And, and he goes, you know, on a long journey in his mind, he's this 11 year old, thinking through, you know, could it be, you know, my parents who, who, who has placed this in me or who, does, who wants me to think this? Can it be my grandparents? And he goes all the way through all the ancestors, you know, that he only seen thought, uh, drawings of back to the garden and Adam and Eve and starts to say, think like, you know, why would God uh, want me to think uh, again, thoughts that I don't uh, want to think? And then he comes to the motive of the, snake and temptation in the garden and he comes to the conclusion somewhat that uh, you know that to think uh, to sin is a part of the christian plot let's say you know there would be no development if we don't you know bite the apple and god wants me to you know it's god's will that i should think you know what i'm not allowing myself to think so with that sort of insight that it's god's will that you know that sends this vision to him somehow he uh, allows the image come to come to him. And what he sees then is the vision of a, a god sitting on a majestic throne above the cathedral in Basel, delivering a gigantic, enormous turd that shatters and crashes the cathedral, the beautiful cathedral. 
And at first, uh, Jung feels a great relief that he has allowed this vision to come to him. And he feels a bliss, he says. There's a certain moment of bliss or of grace. Yeah? But, so he, he feels a, re a relief. But, but soon that relief is, uh, is, is exchanged for uh, yeah, the shame and disgust and embarrassment and confusion around, you know, uh, around what, what he has experienced and, you know, again, wrestling with this question of, of why God would want him to, to have, a, such a, have such an image, why would God, what God wants him to think. And, and, and then we could say that much of his psychological project uh, and his wrestling with Christianity becomes trying to give an answer to that. What, what is, you know, what is in this third? <laughs> what is this God? Who seems at least uh, disappointed with with the with the man-made uh, monuments that are built for him, and not to to go you know too much in advance, but just to say that I mean part of that we could say them being that yeah Jung's work became to to bring to life again what he saw that Christianity the traditional Christianity had repressed. So much of the things that analytical psychology or analytical techniques are sort of, you know, uh, emphasizing on is, is sort of uh, yeah, bringing to life what Jung saw that the traditional Christianity had repressed in the human unconscious. Now. Mm -hmm. Well, even that whole process that he went through with the kind of refusal to let the image surface and finally allowing it to come to mind uh, and feeling the great relief, uh, the release of that suppression, like mirrored in God taking a shit, like that kind of release and the, the feeling that it can bring of like relief. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It was like the template for his uh, psychological approach was somehow well, of course, in that many, vision. Absolutely. But of course, many, many, a few Freudians or more psychoanalytically oriented, you know, analysts have, of course, uh, also analyzed this as having to do with Jung's struggle, not with the archetypal father, but with his own father and, and his difficulties with idealizing his father. Most of the time when Jung speaks of his father throughout, uh, it, it's in very, very negative terms, especially through memory streams and reflections. So, uh, you know, the Freudian take would be also that, yeah, he struggled somehow with idealizing his father and then tried, had to destroy him. And with his father, he had to destroy, you know, what he represented and what he believed in, which was, you know, more represented by the traditional structures of, of Christianity and Christ. I'm not saying that I'm supporting that, but it's, it's to say that there are different interpretations uh, also from other schools. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, well, it's fascinating. I mean, we could spend a, a whole episode just talking about that dream or vision and its implications and how it plays out. But uh, just that's something that maybe people I had never heard of it before your podcast. And uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Then going back through memories, dreams, reflections and reading about some of those early experiences. Uh, and Jung himself was silent about it until end of his life when he had that conversation with Angela Jaffe that became Memory Streams Reflections. He had not shared it with anyone supposedly or maybe he said with his wife but but if one reads Memory Streams Reflections it's just Jung emphasizes again and again you know the importance of it but it is quite a spectacular and you know graphic you know vision and 
you know, there might be reasons also for why, for why not uh, all. Yeah, in, when I did union training, you know, we never went into this. Uh, we never mm. discussed this in detail. It was almost like um, that struggle led to his his allowing of heretical thought in a way, which then opened up the door for him to analyze and critique uh, Christianity and the church. Uh, yeah. Mm, no, that's a good point. Mm. So that, um, I mean, that was very pivotal. And then I think the next thing that comes to my mind in terms of his relationship with Christianity is his uh, communion and the experience that he had then. Yeah, I mean, very, very, very negative experience of, of the communion. Uh, I mean, first of all, I think uh, if one reads memory streams reflections, there were excitements, you know, before because he was saying like, yeah, finally I will see what this is about. You know, yeah, they're going to let me into the kind of the secret club. I'm going to be initiated. Yeah, it is yeah. initiation. But uh, yeah, then uh, he came in and he said, you know, the, the, the wine tasted cheap and the bread, it was flat. You know, there was nothing, nothing, nothing happened. You know, it was just a matter of fact. And and, and, he, and he, he was left, you know, uh, feeling like, you know, the church is not for me. The, the church, he said, is death. The church is not life. It's not love. It, it, it's death. There's no life in the church. And, and the way that Jung continues to critique the church is in very, very harsh, harsh words. He, he's really attacking the church. He continues to attack the church in much of his writings. Uh, uh, like that there was no, yeah, there was a great disillusionment and uh, disenchantment and uh, confusion, I would say, you know, left him with. And maybe a further sort of separation uh, between him and his father, you know, that somehow couldn't speak the same language. and. And, and couldn't really, you know, yeah, we couldn't really connect also emotionally, it seems like. Mm. Yeah, hearing that and hearing him speak so directly in that way, uh, you know, talking about watching the men, just like you said, matter-of-factly, just leaving the church and going to the parking lot and going on with their day, like no big transformation had happened, no encounter with the numinous. It was just a, um, yeah a flat and mundane experience. Uh, I mean, I could relate to that in a way. Um, I, I ended up going to a Roman Catholic high school because they had a really good music program. Um, I was baptized Anglican, but uh, never really went to church. I went to some Sunday school for a little while, but I think that was more just to get me out of the house. Uh, <laughs> but I think I also enjoyed it and I asked for it. Uh, but I went to this Roman Catholic high school and I ended up uh, going to some of the mass. And although I wasn't supposed to take uh, communion because I hadn't, uh, <laughs> hadn't been initiated, if you will, I boldly <laughs> went in line and, and took the wafer. And I was like young, really disappointed uh, to get this flat, tasteless wafer. Um, it wasn't until many, many years later when I was in a, a Brazilian church that used ayahuasca as sacrament that I said, oh, this is a sacrament that actually works. Like if only the <laughs> the churches had used a, a sacrament that caused the transformation in a way, it would be in a much different place and be actually offering people something. Um, so mm. I, could, I could relate to Jung in this way. And I think um, I talked to many people who are 
maybe lapsed uh, Christians. Uh, they gave it up in their teenage years. Uh, they found it wasn't really giving them anything and maybe it was just full, too full of dogma. And of course the problematic history of the churches uh, with all the kinds of abuses and here in Canada, the residential schools. And so it's got a terrible history. And so I understand why people have rejected it. Um, but I think Jung offers us an example that although the church may not work for us, there is still something that we almost are obliged to wrestle with as inherit inheritors of the Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's been encouraging to me to kind of stick with it, stick with the tensions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, that resonates also with me. I mean, there's there's a section in in, uh, in the Red Book in Liber Novus where, where where Jung speaks about you know when many people lose their faith in you know that age between you know thirteen to seventeen, and he says something in that conversation in the Red Book like it's not a very discriminative age, mm -hmm. you know it's it is interesting you know and so that said you know I also work with people uh, just as Jung did who. who who later on through analysis, you know, find back to their faith and also finding back to church, you know, something I also experienced, you know, I, I myself, I, I'm not, I didn't grow up in the church, although I also had confession, I wasn't very religious as a child, but I, I find them personally, sometimes that Jung's attacks on the church are too, uh, too, too harsh and too, uh, yeah, that the church has, you know, yeah, many, 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 many functions into it's really a question I wonder about the church and the future of the church and uh, what this, yeah, this, how and if it will live on. It's a, it's a great uh, uh, interest of mine. Also, all the abandoned churches that we now have, you know, here in, in Europe and in East Europe, it's uh, especially, yeah, it's it's really, the churches are, are empty. But uh, as we said in another podcast, but the, the lines to the therapy rooms are, are very long. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so the therapeutic potential of the church, you know, and, and uh, this examination that we, or exploration between, uh, yeah, traditional Christianity and its form and, and Jung's sort of, you know, more fluid and more psychological approach to things. I feel like there's an interesting, uh, there's a lot of life there. And I think, you know, the church could, could, could integrate more of Christianity and sorry, sorry, more of, of analytical psychology and ideas and maybe vice versa. Mm. Yeah, interesting. I I've, I haven't read the Red Book. I've been adverse to reading it for my own <laughs> reasons. I've, I feel like it's a bit voyeuristic. Um, but I've enjoyed hearing other people talk about the Red Book, uh, particularly uh, Hillman and um, Shandasani, who I just I finished reading the Lament of the Dead recently and really enjoyed their conversation around the book. But I've been kind of allergic to reading the Red Book myself. Uh, I don't know. I I don't have a, a kind of firm position on it. But uh, <laughs> so I wasn't aware that he had said that. But that's interesting because often when I talk to people who are trying to find um, a more spiritual life and they rejected Christianity at a young age, I'll often ask them, like, what else? did you reject or make your mind up about when you're a teenager um, that you still hold true to that? I mean, maybe it's worth a reconsideration later in life. Because <laughs> if I had um, 
stood by everything I made my mind up about when I was a teenager, uh, my, my life would be very limited right now. <laughs> mm, yeah, good point. Yeah. Um, okay, so the other thing that I found interesting, and this whole exploration has led me to better understand, is the difference uh, in the de de denominations of Christianity. I, first of all, I never knew what Catholic meant, that it meant uh, like universal. No one had ever told me that. <laughs> no mm. one had ever told me uh, the implications of um, the word Protestant, that it was a, a protestation against uh, the orthodoxy in a way, and that whole idea of the need for a reformation of the church. Uh, and so one of the things that you talk about and others talk about in regards to Jung is that he's very much working in the Protestant tradition. Um, could you speak a little more about that? So as mm -hmm. we said, he was raised in a Protestant family mm -hmm. and probably a largely Protestant culture rather than Catholic being from Switzerland, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But what does it mean to, to work in that Protestant tradition? Well, yeah, as you emphasized, I mean, it, it means to be a, a protest. Yeah, there's a protest, so you need to have something to protest against. And and uh, someone has said, uh, I think it was Murray Stein, you know, that, uh, you know, he was he was a reformed, uh, trying to reform the reformed during somehow. So he was, in a way, trying to bring reformation to, to what was already the Protestant, you know, tradition that he was uh, a child of, yeah. So I guess we would say that we can see throughout Jung's life, I would say, how this sort of protest or how this, uh, maybe this also rebellious aspect, you know, of Jung uh, comes to life uh, first in his relationship to his father and the traditional church, but later uh, in his relationship to Freud and the psychoanalytic movement. In many ways, you know, Jung used psychoanalysis to define his own ideas, yeah? So like just as Martin Luther with Protestantism, you know, he was, he had a clear enemy with the Catholic Church and the Pope, which he said was the devil, yeah, in person somehow. And through his attacks on the other, he sort of defined also his own position. So I think that's, you know, very much a, a Protestant sort of impulse that uh, comes to life, you know, yeah, for example, in the psychoanalytic project where you, yeah, wanted to go much further than Freud, let's say, uh, and, and Freud was, yeah, had quite clear definitions of, you know, what, what the science that he, he tried to offer. But, but that goes, I would say, until the end, one can see at times that Jung's uh, Protestant impulse, uh, I think Hillman also points this out, the Protestant impulse in, in, in Jung is also to yeah, be very open to other traditions. That's, uh, you know, that it's not... Uh, you know, if you look at the Red Book again, you know, he's like, yeah, that's a, quite a, a brew, yeah? It's mm -hmm. not only Christianity in there, although Shandazan and Hinnan and, you know, myself, of course, also see that it's clearly Christ he's struggling with, but it's not a Christ, you know, that you would find in, you know, in, in Switzerland in the early 20th century. He spices it up with, with a lot of other ingredients. Yeah? So that type of openness, you know, I think it's also a, a part of this uh, Protestant uh, spirit let's say yeah mm. Murray Stein wrote a, a beautiful paper on it that's called uh, Union Psychology and the Spirit of Protestantism uh, where he 
explores this in, in depth. And it's also then related to uh, yeah, other theologians, other reformers, you know, within Switzerland. Jung says himself that he's deeply inspired by uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, who was a big theologian about 200 years before. But he also said he didn't read him much. And that's also a little bit the thing with Jung, that he's not, you know, really, it, it appears to me that he doesn't really want to engage too deeply with the theology in that regard, but he's, he's attacking it. And that can be at times also a problem, uh, maybe, because he's, uh, yeah, he hasn't read that much of it. He spent, you know, I'm sure he, he read a great deal because he was Jung, but he spent more time with them, yeah, maybe alchemy or other traditions rather spiritual, you know, traditions, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> it reminds me of, uh, I read or heard Hillman say once that he, he could only write when he was angry. So when he was uh, protesting, like, against something, that's when he got really fired up and inspired. And so maybe uh, mm. he could um, relate to Jung in that way. Right, but I think Jung also sends out a warning somewhere where he says, you know, just protesting, you know, that's then you become just a protester. That's not valuable enough. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the question is, has also to do with reformation, I think, you know, I mean, inner reformation, like transformation, or, you know, reforming systems of sorts. And so to be just a protester, that's, yeah, that can also become, yeah, like a poor, you know, uh, just a rebel. And, yeah, then you're kind of stuck in adolescence, I guess. I'm not saying that yeah. any of them, them were, but you know, there's a risk with just being a protester. Yeah, and, and kind of not taking up uh, your responsibility to uh, help develop or uh, be a part of something that you mm. think is better, which Jung obviously did. And I think Hillman, in his own way, was trying to to move Jung's thinking or his psychology forward in the way he thought was appropriate right up until the end of his life, starting to bring in more of uh, the anima mundi and concern for society and, and culture. Um, yeah, what came to mind when you're talking about the Reformation and Lutheranism was, it seems to me that Jung would think that Reformation isn't something that happens once, but that it should be an ongoing process, continually reforming. So not even just reforming the reformers, but the 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 church or the doctrine of the church should be something that's alive and, and always changing according to the spirit of the times, right? Yeah, I, I think that that sounds like Jung to me that he would uh, subscribe to that. But it's also, yeah, that's how he speaks about reformation, maybe, but also about incarnation later, yeah. That the on yeah, that the incarnation is, is something that's ongoing. But I think it is also important to say a reformer, you know, uh, or a Protestant reformation, it has also to do with opening up new avenues or new ways to more directly relate to God. That's what Martin Luther also worked on, yeah, like you know things like translating the Bible to a language that everyone can read, you know, or like you, everyone can be justified by grace. So there's also this democratization or this, yeah, uh, it's for everyone and it's a direct relationship away with the hierarchies that blocks the connection to the, to the divine. So mm -hmm. that's also very much Jung and very much uh, Luther, which I, I, I didn't bring him into the presentation, but it's someone that I, 
always have in the background because uh, yeah, I feel like Jung is uh, yeah, he's an, sort of an archetype for for this type of uh, uh, reformations. And maybe and to add to that, uh, it's also often reformation can also bring a new relationship to to the devil and to evil and to the dark. And this is also something that one notices both in how Luther speaks about uh, the devil as a living force, you know, in of reality, and that man is in between the devil and the God, and our inner life is sort of the battlefield. But also Jung, you know, uh, trying to, I think Jung helps us to not demonize the darkness or the devil, but also seeing that, uh, that it's a spirit that, you know, needs to be... Uh, yeah, not just rejected or repressed, but that can transform and that needs to, to work for you in order to yeah, cut the grapes. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's an important point in Jung and some of the tension that uh, he has with, with uh, Christianity. Uh, and was it uh, Victor White who he had those discussions with, uh, particularly about uh, the concept of... Um, Privatio boni, the um, that evil doesn't exist on its own; that it's merely the absence of the good. And I think they wrestled with that one, like Jung, thinking very much that uh, evil was a part of God, and that uh, our concept of God had to undergo a kind of psychoanalysis in incorporating um, its shadow and not rejecting it and uh, creating. Um, this uh, polarity with no relationship or an adversarial relationship. And that to me is fascinating that he would be so bold as to psychoanalyze God, which I think he kind of does in the answer to Job as well, right? He talks about God as having to undergoing a kind of coming to consciousness from the old Testament mm -hmm. God to the new Testament God. And I mean, Right. What a bold thinker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I'm also just um, shocked at times and impressed and uh, yeah, all of it. But yeah, I just had a conversation with someone about uh, the answer to Job and yeah, it's a very complex work. You know, I cannot say that I have fully uh, digested all of it still, although I read it a few times, but it's, yeah, it's, it's Jung, you know, Shamdasana also points that out that you know it's sort of Jung delivering a sort of theology, but but that theology you know like uh, integrating the dark side of, of, of God into the uh, Godhead, it's it was already born in the Red Book, and that's what's so interesting and fascinating that already at that time through his experiences that he had those years you know, then the rest of his life he elaborated and worked through and. Yeah, tried to make a psychology of, you know, what he had experiences in his own encounters, yeah. Mm. Just as a side note, um, what, is, what is your thought about all of these Jungians calling Liber Novus the Red Book? Liber Novus translates to the New Book, which sounds a lot like a New Testament. Do you think that uh, Jungians, like, really... Um, don't want to accept that that Jung himself may have considered this a sort of New Testament. I mean, why why the the non translation? It seems almost like a defense to me, or something, or a distancing from you know. Well, we don't want to call it the new book. That's a little could be problematic or something. I don't know. Mm, what do you mm. think? 
Well, just to say again, I mean, Jung didn't want it published, no? I mean, there was times when he was thought, thinking about publishing it, but he didn't want it published. I mean, that's clear. And I mean, now as it is published, you know, yeah, there's many different type of reactions from, from the Jungian world. But I think, you know, yeah, one side of Jung that comes alive in that book is, of course, the prophets. I mean, Jung, the prophets, the book starts with the, the way of what is to come. <laughs> and he speaks about the new God. I mean, it, but as, as Shandasan and others points out, yeah, there's also tension again. Yeah, he, he's a prophet, but then he sort of steps back a little bit and starts to look at it and psychologize it or, you know, look at it from a more skeptical lens. So, so I think, I think you know, not an, every union, I'm sure, are, you know, happy with, with uh, uh, this idea of, of viewing, you know, Jung as a prophet. There was a lot of critique around that in the 90s, you know, from this uh, scholar, Catholic scholar, I think, Richard Noll, who wrote this book, The Aryan Christ and the, the Jung cult, you know, two attacks on Jung, you know. Uh, complete attacks on Jung and Jungianism, I would say. So I think uh, people are, yeah, scared, I guess, some people to be too identified with that Jung. Having said that, many Jungians are also just fascinated and drawn to it. And and I'm sure some also read it religiously as a new, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. as the new prophecy. But I myself, I, I think, uh, although it's a bit harsh maybe, but I think what Sean McGrath says, you know, it's like the right, the right response to the red book is is making your own. I think mm -hmm. you know to to there is something about that you know that yeah, that you know it's really about uh, yeah. Look at this guy really really took things serious and he gave so much value to inner experience and has so much care and beauty and yeah. So um, I, I think uh, rather than looking for the prophecy, that's also what inspires me, you know, like that you would put so much love into, you know, your, your uh, encounters. Hey there. I just wanted to jump in with a little request that if you appreciate this conversation, please take a moment to give us a review and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening. It'll only take a second and it's a great way to support the podcast. If you have a few dollars a month to spare, please head on over to patreon.com forward slash medicine path to become a monthly subscriber. There you'll get early access to episodes, the full podcast archives, yoga practice resources, and even some sweet medicine path merch, including t-shirts and stickers. Okay. Thanks for listening. Now back to our conversation. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I think that's a really good point that you bring up about people taking the red book as a, a kind of Bible in a way. Uh, 
It reminds me of how Jung talked about the notion of the imitation of Christ. Uh, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Um, imitatio Christi and its relationship to Jung's idea of individuation. Right. It reminds you a little bit of that, uh, this, uh, not to take it too, too literally, I mean, or... Uh... Yeah, not to take Jung's Red Book as a, a kind of uh, a Bible, but like Sean McGrath said, to um, take that as inspiration to create your own Red Book mm. and to find your own myth. Right, yeah. No, the imitation of Christ and imitatio Christi is something that I, yeah, I, I spent a little bit of time last year to try to come to terms with also in the conversations in the podcast. But if one wants to, to look at how Jung comes to this concept, it is also in the Red Book. Because in the, in the chapter Divine Folly, he has a conversation with a librarian. And the librarian asks him, you know, what book are you looking for? And it comes to his mind that, yeah, maybe intuitively says, you know, I, I want to have Thomas Akempi's book, Imitatio Christi. And that's a real book that was released in the 14th century. It's one of the most uh, well-read uh, devotional books in the world. I think it's the most read one after the Bible. So this is the book that... Is, Jung... it, is, it, is it Thomas Kemp? Thomas Akempis. Okay. Well, put a link in the description, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't try to spell that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they, they're not sure that he wrote it, but that's what, what most scholars uh, of Christianity think, yeah, 14th century. And that book is yeah, it's a devotional book. It, it's, uh, uh, it's called Imitatio Christi, and it, it deals with, you know, how to live a life, uh, how to live a, a Christian life, how to live, uh, how, to live uh, how to walk the Christian path. It speaks about the uh, contemplations around death and time, it speaks about the importance of interior life and withdrawing from the world. Uh, it, it, it delves into yeah, a lot of existential matters as well, but it is a devotional book. And, and Jung did read it. I don't know the details of uh, how much and in what way, but in the Red Book, that's the book that he picks up. And, and with that, uh, he starts a long conversation with himself and other characters about what is this uh, imitation of Christ? What does it mean to imitate Christ? So before going into Jung, maybe like traditionally in Christianity, imitation of Christ is, you know, it, it goes, it, it has a long tradition also before that book uh, from the 14th century, uh, already in, 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 yeah, in the Bible, you know, and in St. Paul, you know, speak about following Christ. Actually, imitation or imitating Christ is not a word that's used in any way in, in the Bible. But there's a yeah, the dis discussion around a follower or a discipline and, and a discipline to become a disciple or a follower of Christ. And um, then, you know, different, you know, really Christian thinkers have spoken of this concept as a sort of key concept of uh, becoming a Christian, yeah, to, to walk in the footsteps of Ye Jesus. But I wouldn't say that uh, in the early church, for example, it wasn't even so much about living the life of Jesus. It was more about, you know, being open to the Holy Spirit or it was speaking about martyrdom and but especially, you know, to, to receive the Holy Spirit. But, um, for example, you know, yeah, as, as time uh, went on, there was also, you know, 
people like Saint, Fra Saint Francis in the 14th century who had the stigmata. He was the first person who then had the bleeding from the hands and really so on some level, I guess we could say, identified with Christ, you know, Christ's life psychologically. That said, you know, St. Francis wasn't only that, he was also, he tried to live a life like Jesus, he tried to live for the poor, but he also lived in harmony with nature and such. So I would say he, in many ways, his life was very different from, from Jesus Christ, but still there was this identification with the stigmata. So this is what Jung uh, picks up on and discusses and wrestles with in the Red Book, you know. Uh, what does this mean to imitate Christ? Uh, what does it mean to be a Christian today? You then asked in the 1913, 1415. Um, uh, and, and Jung had, you know, already in the, with a the break from Freud, realized somehow for himself, and he expresses this in Memory Streams Reflection, that he doesn't live any longer in the Christian myth. He, he, he's, he couldn't see himself really as a Christian, not in the way that Christianity had been presented to him. So he says somewhere also, you know, I know it's the truth, but I need the truth in a new form. I cannot live it in the form. Uh, so imitation of Christ is this sort of core concept. And uh, Jung then wrestles with, with the concept of imitating Christ and turns it into, you know, uh, almost, you know, it's very, how should I say, it's a very reformative or, or, or rebellious sort of take on imitation of Christ, because actually the conclusion it comes to is to, in order to imitate Christ today, I should not imitate Christ. To, to imitate Christ uh, is, is, would be, you know, the complete, you know, false way to walk. I need to uh, live life as free and as, you know, truthfully as Jesus Christ did. I need to sort of not follow anyone, but follow my path. So there's, you know, instead of following Jesus or, you know, maybe setting him as an example, he, he, he says that the example of Jesus is sort of to go against the values of the collective. So he's stressing and emphasizes Jesus, I would say, rebellious aspect. And this aspect of, you know, tearing down the temple or like, you know, wanting, yeah, the reformer again. So out of Jung's rendering uh, comes this concept of, uh, yeah, to not uh, imitate Christ is to imitate Christ. And that, you know, we can see sort of the seed of, of, of his theory of individuation. So where he speaks, you know, about, yeah, again, it's, a, it's a, this identification with the collective values in order to find a path that is, you know, tr truly yours. But it's also a very uh, radical uh, rendering of, of a Christian uh, concept because many people who imitate Christ or who read that book from Thomas Kempis, I don't think they are sort of, you know, just trying to imitate exactly the life of uh, Christ, you know, but they're trying to learn from him as being the, the son of God and, you know, as a representation on, on earth. So they try to, maybe most Christians would lift up rather the generosity or the self-sacrificial self -sacrificial nature of, you know, Christ. Uh, rather than his rebellious aspects. But that's what, what Jung emphasizes a lot, you know. He sees him as a, he sees Christ as an analogy, you know, for, for individuation. You know? And, and he says, like, we should follow and live our lives as true and authentic as, 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 as Jesus did. Yeah. 
I, I pulled a quote from your presentation from <laughs> Liber Novus. Uh, Jung says, if I am to truly imitate Christ, I do not imitate anyone. I emulate no one, but go my own way, and I will no longer call myself a Christian. Yeah, like you said, that's radical. Like if I'm truly to imitate Christ in terms of being true to myself and my own path, going my own way, that would <laughs> disallow me from being a part of any collective group or ideology. Uh, amazing. I mean, <laughs> I'm just kind of rooting for Young here. He's just he just goes for it. <laughs> and and how does it resonate with you? Well, certainly, I, I have a kind of anti-conformist, uh, rebellious nature to to myself, and I've also found it really hard to fit into groups when I when I've tried to find a place of belonging uh, for church or other spiritual groups. Uh, I always find great difficulty in that because I find um, to belong to a lot of these groups ask me to give up too much of myself and to kind of uh, let myself be absorbed into the collective. Um, and I, I've struggled with that because if you're truly to follow this path, it can lead you to feel perhaps isolated from society or from these collective groups. Uh, so it's not, it's not an easy path. And I think it's like... <laughs> You know, something that Jung also struggled with for a lot of his life is being a kind of outsider and wondering, does anybody understand me? You know, like, where are my, where are my people? You know, where's my tribe? <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, I think it's a, it's a, you know, it's a radical rendering and parts of me can also, you know, parts of, for me, it, it resonates, but there's also... Yeah, it's very much a protest, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, imitation of Christ or Jesus Christ is, is so much more than a rebel, you know. I think he was yeah. so much more than a rebel, and I think that's uh, where I can have more difficulties in uh, in in following or walking with Jung uh, when it comes when when he when 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 Jesus becomes a rebel because that's not you know what he was. It's not all he was, for sure. That's one of the things I appreciate about uh, Thomas More. Uh, the way he talks about Jesus brings out so much more of his other qualities. Like, he talks about Jesus as an Epicurean. Um, he was a great party host. Like, he went to a wedding and there's not enough wine or food. And so, <laughs> you know, he uses miraculous powers to throw a great party. And that's so true. And, and how um, Jesus was very much um, a friend to so many people. Uh, so that, that spirit of friendship and brotherhood was very central to, I think, um, living in a Christian way. It's not often talked about, you know, usually it's like um, charity and things like that. But man, when it comes to loving your neighbor, like Christ said, it's like, it's really important. And we see what happens if we don't follow that particular um, commandment. Uh, it's just nothing but division and all of that uh, rebelliousness. And yeah. So I think there's definitely more, but that just mm. Jung really bringing that forward. Uh, 
that if I'm truly to imitate Christ, it means that I don't emulate anyone else. I don't follow anyone else's path. I have to find my own. And that's a great task. And I think that's the core of, uh, of Jung's psychology and the, the psychotherapy is helping people to find what myth they're living, what is their vocation in life, um, what brings them meaning. Uh, but it doesn't, you know, in Jung's thinking, doesn't include community, which I think is oh. something that we're realizing or I'm realizing in my life is so important to the whole picture is also finding community. Would you agree that perhaps that's a limitation of Jung's? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's, as you also mentioned, this was something that, I mean, Jung, I think, was comfortable in communities if he was the center of attention. I mean, he created communities around him because he was a Jesus figure. I mean, he brought people together in that regard. But, but, but he, you know, he would never go to, into a church. He would never set his foot in a church. I mean, he tried to go to Rome, but he fainted. So he, I don't know, he missed the train, he didn't go there. So, you know, again, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I find, you know, I can sort of walk with you until there somewhere. But I think there is something also there that, you know, yeah, this question of community and of, of brotherhood and of, uh, yeah, you know, there's, a, there's absolutely a time for emphasizing the rebellious aspect or, you know, go your own way. But there's also time for, you know, looking at similarities and same and what we share and you know what brings us together and you know what holds us all together you know and that's you know yeah the question of yeah that's where i think god is you know a very <laughs> helpful uh, or orienting point in a way you know and, and that's uh, again you know jung's uh, concept of individuation is uh, yeah it's powerful, but he, he does speak about the collective and he does speak a lot about, not a lot, but he does speak about, you know, the importance of bringing new values back to the community and such. But, but, uh, but as a matter of fact, I think, you know, many unions and, uh, struggle with this question, you know, I also myself included, you know, and how to live in communion with others, you know, without, uh, while still keeping one's sense of, you know, uniqueness. Uh, so I feel like Jung's rendering of Imitatio Christi is helpful, it's radical, it's important, but it's, it, it's not, a, it doesn't work as an exclusive rendering. One should study Thomas Akempis and, you know, look at, you know, other people's, you know, uh, wrestling with that, with that concept, I think, to get a fuller picture uh, of, of, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, to get a fuller picture of, of the Christian vision, yeah, mm -hmm. because, I mean, Christianity has a vision. Well, and to follow Jung in this, that it's a it's a myth that needs to be dreamt forward or needs to be continually re-envisioned by new generations. And mm. so not to kind of push Christianity in a particular direction or the religion of the future, having some idea of what that should be, but allowing um, maybe going along with the dreaming forward of of the Christian myth. Uh, so being like attentive to like, well, what wants to happen in churches now? You know, how do people want to gather in community? Uh, how are these Christian values enacted in personal lives and in society? 
Um, I think those that's much more interesting to me anyways, to be um, kind of a attendant to the unfolding. Mm, absolutely, no, that, that resonates with me as well. And I, and, and I resonate very much with you when he speaks about the dreaming, the, the myth onward. Then, of course, in his own uh, life, you know, there was also a lot of tension there because there was also a tension, I think, between his uh, projects, if I can say so, of analytical psychology and, uh, you know, and Christianity, two sort of universal, uh, let's say, uh, visions or, or projects that, you know, uh, at times, you know, there's this tension also with Jung where analytical psychology is sort of um, complementing, you know, it's complementing traditional Christianity that sort of brings to life what Christianity has repressed. But, 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 but then, then, you know, one has to be, there has to be an equal footing there. Yeah? So, for example, you know, in, in Jungian, Jungian trainings today, there's very little emphasis on Christianity. But the Christianity that you get in contact with is the Christianity for, for Jung's rendering. And I think that 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 there's a danger there. Mm. I think you know we have to take both this, you know, this new science or this new psychology, still new somehow, very serious, but we also have to very take the tradition very serious and and to continue to see if there's ways to yeah, we really need to understand that myth that we want to to dream onward. Yeah. And it's yeah. A, 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 yeah, I guess part of what I was expressing there shows that I'm a little uncomfortable with even the idea of me dreaming the myth forward. Um, and I think what's coming up for me as we talk is uh, kind of the side of Jung that um, wasn't so humble, that was uh, hubristic in a way, like going back to that early vision of God taking a shit on the church. <laughs> and then the other, um, I think it was a dream that he had where he was unable to come into full prostration in front of the God image, uh, something in that too. Like he wasn't able to fully humble himself before the external God image. And um, I, I think about that interview uh, that he had with the, I think the BBC, it's like a three hour interview on YouTube. Uh, where he's asked the famous, famously asked uh, if he believes in God, he says, I don't believe I know. And I feel like in that moment, he was caught up in, um, in hubris. Like, you know, he'd been the focus of uh, this interview on television. And I know what the danger of that, you know, being the center of attention, how you can become kind of possessed by uh, the, uh, the inner God image or something, you know, and, I wonder if there, there's been enough said about that, like kind of Jung's, uh, his his uh, inflation in a way. I mean, what do you think about that? I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. Yeah, I mean, I think he was prone to that, and that happened, and he would probably also acknowledge that, or or that yeah, at times he he flew very high, and uh, later he would uh, sort of maybe backtrack a little bit. But I think, you know, the first of all, the dream with a temple uh, where he's in the temple and he's next to his father who's bowing out of faith and kneeling, touching the floor with his head and Jung imitates his father, he says, interestingly enough. 
So he's imitating his father, but he cannot reach the ground. There's one millimeter. And then one can read Jung's interpretation of that in Memory Streams Reflections. And then one can read other scholars like Wolfgang Gigerich, who's done a very different type of, of understanding of, of that dream. But and, and I think that that question of humility, yeah. And, and I mean, as, as we're reminded of, I mean, faith and humility is, you know, that's, that's very intimately linked. Uh, and, and in a way, I think Jung, yeah, he was wanted to be a scientist, or he was a scientist, or he wanted to know. And many people come to, yeah, we land in the conclusion Jung was a Gnostic. He was some sort of Christian Gnostic, and he emphasized knowledge, you know, knowledge of the divine. And I think there's a, there's a, there's a lot of value to that. but. Yeah, I think the, the faith is the faith component, you know, which yeah, underlying faith is the, yeah, the humility to, to turn to God, you know, to turn and pray to God or, I'm, you know, that is, uh, that's, uh, that leap, you know, I'm not sure if uh, Jung really took. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I would say that Jung had uh, faith, faith or not, but I think that's again, you know, I, I'm glad that, you know, you didn't try to be too humble. I mean, he expressed with his courage so many bold ideas that we're now wrestling with. But, but that, absolutely, he was not uh, humility embodied. That's clear. And he did not embody faith. He's not the man who's embodying faith to me. Yeah. Yeah, I think his response in that interview was uh, kind of defensive in that way, saying, you know, like that to believe is, is a bad thing. Um, uh, and I think, you know, that for me is one of the places where I have to kind of leave Jung, at least at this point in my life. Um, I think that is one of the functions of religion is that it does put before us something that's much bigger than us and, and uh, provides us with images um, that continually remind us of our small little place in the universe. And I think that sometimes what can happen in particularly uh, Jungian analysis or therapy is that the individual becomes so centralized and the images of the personal unconscious become, are given such a high place. Uh, I think that that was a large part of like Hillman's critique of, um, of psychology is that it becomes so uh, individualized takes place in these windowless analysis rooms. And, and meanwhile, the world's burning, you know, the world's on fire. So I wonder um, in some of the conversations you've been having, who are some of the people you've been talking to who are helping to dream the dream forward in a way that's uh, inspiring to you? Like who can we look to now uh, who's doing some of that work? Well, I think uh, the people that I really find bringing very interesting perspectives uh, or dreams uh, uh, forward is, uh, for example, Wolfgang Gigerich, which is, uh, let's say, post-Union or a thinker. He's living in Berlin, actually, who wrote that. Uh, yeah, you can maybe link to that, to this one millimeter essay where he examines you know Jung's Christianity in a very interesting way analyzing that dream I think you know people like uh, you know uh, yeah from McGrath is you know for me very helpful you know because he's coming from the tradition more so he can sort of uh, 
and he he comes from the tradition of Christianity, but he also knows a lot about Jung and about psychoanalysis. So that's really helpful, I find. Uh, of course, you know, someone like uh, Sonu Shambhasani has done an immense work in, in, yeah, in, in, in taking away some of the hero worship and giving a clear understanding of, you know, Jung's um, psychological project. I mean, only next year, Philemon Foundation releasing two books that are dealing with Christianity. One is about Jung's writings on the uh, St. Loyola's visions, you know, that he did at the ETH in, I think, 1939. That's going to be released, I think, in January. And then there's another uh, book, which is about, you know, um, the, the Paul Seath or the Cornwall Seminars, where Jung speaks about the repressions uh, of Christianity, how Christianity has repressed the human unconsciousness or the unconscious, something I also discussed in that uh, presentation, but I don't think we will have time to go into it today. So there's a lot of, of work from the Philemon Foundation in, uh, uh, and I think uh, studying these texts, you know, and together, you know, uh, having conversations about it. I, I, I have a sense that there's more and more people having conversations, but I'm not sure, you know, you know, the dreaming is going on, you know, within the analytical room, I think, you know, it's going on, you know, between uh, scholars and analysts and hopefully theologians, but I guess we need to bring them all together now in a room and, and, and continue to have conversations. Yeah? That's at least what I'm interested in. I, I'd like to have, you know, conversations with people like we're having now and, and bring uh, people from these uh, you don't need to be necessarily a Jung, you know, you don't need to be a Christian believer, but, but you, yeah, what you often say, and what I also say, we, we need to be open to wrestle. Yeah, let's just, okay, if you're open to wrestle, you know, you're welcome. And, and, and so I, I think, you know, that there's going to be a lot of dreaming. I mean, that's my sense, you know, that there's that is a right, uh, there's a longing, because as you said, that the world is on fire. Individuation is not enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, integration is not enough, as you know, so my grass says, you know, that's, that's what we want to yeah. know. Well, and, and like Jung said, like that's the that's the best thing you can do for the world. Like people love to pull that quote out of context and, and put it on Instagram that uh, the most important work you can do for the world is your own uh, integration work. And I don't mm. agree. <laughs> I think that has to be going on while we try to um, take care of the world and each other. Uh, and maybe... Uh, that is the path to real integration and salvation is to uh, do your individuation work in your community uh, in service to, you know, and following that Christian ideal of, uh, of charity as a path to salvation or, or karma yoga as the path to uh, realization, uh, humility being in service to something greater mm. than yourself. Absolutely. And I think that's also maybe where Jung's rendering of uh, Imitator Christi becomes too limited for me, because Christ, uh, at least for me, represents that, what you're emphasizing now, which is, you know, yeah, like for the world, for the other, for the neighbor, for, you know, to give your life, you know, to give your life away for someone. And that is, you know, uh, yeah, that, that's right. That's truly radical. Mm -hmm. And that's deeply, that's deeply uh, Christian. Yeah, I agree. And that's something that actually uh, yoga helped me come to. Even just the physical ability to get down on the floor, put my head on the ground and be comfortable in that, um, 
that prostrate uh, position, you know, of a full surrender to um, bowing down to the earth. Um, so I think uh, even that um, that's got to be a part of the conversation too, is how do we interweave practices and wisdom from other traditions into um, whatever's coming next. I, I think it has to be a kind of global integration in some ways. Um, I, I don't know what that looks like. You know, maybe the new age is, uh, is trying to push things toward that in its own way, uh, this kind of syncretization, you know. But I mean, the way that you speak now, I mean, it does remind me of, uh, that meeting that happened between Max Seller, a union analyst from Berlin, who was uh, in the concentration camps uh, shortly and fled with his family first to England and then to Los Angeles in the US and was a part of building the union co community over there. As uh, he was going back. The, he had the dream, right? Yeah, let's, right, let's finish a... with that dream. That's a great place to finish. Thanks. Uh, yeah, so after the war, after the Second World War, Max Seller, who had been, had been in the camps, uh, emigrated to uh, LA, coming back to Zurich, uh, uh, has uh, analysis with Jung. And uh, uh, the last night uh, before he's, he's about to leave Zurich, this must have been in, uh, is it 1946 or 48? I'm not sure. Uh, he has a dream. And, and he, the dream comes back to him just as he's about to leave. So he's on the train. He's like, oh, I, I need to discuss this dream with Jung. So he sends a telegram to Jung. And Jung says, yes, sure, come over. And then he comes back and he shares the dream, which goes to something like uh, Max Seller has this dream. He is uh, in a vast space and he's seeing the people are working everywhere on building a sort of temple everyone is working on their individual pillar and uh, Max in the dream is also working on his own pillar. And he shares the dream with, with Jung and Jung says that, yeah, that's the dream that we're all building on. And, and, and Max says, what, what do you mean? Yeah, that, that, is, that is the temple, you know, that is the, the future of what is to come. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. And everyone is working on a pillar. They're working in Russia. They're working in China. They're working in France. Uh, so, but so in a way, the, Max Seller understood this dream as you know, my individuation, my work, my process. You know, is a, is a part of a larger process. You know, and the work that I do as an analyst. You know, although I might just meet 10, 15, or 20 people a week. You know, it has an effect that goes beyond that individual. It, it, you know, it, it travels, it transmutes, it changes also people around. And somehow it helped Max, you know, that sort of prophetic uh, vision of, of uh, Jung uh, helped, you know, to see the point of the analytical work that it's a part of, you know, of, of something larger. And important to say is that Jung said, you know, or Max asks, you know, how long will it take to build the temple? And Jung says, yeah, 600 years. And he asks, how do you know? Well, I know it's from dreams, my own dreams and my patience. So that's yeah. maybe, maybe, maybe it's the prophet speaking, but, but Jung's interpretation helped uh, at least this guy. Yeah, I think, you know, 
I think that that was Jung's way of saying, look, don't worry about getting to the solution in your lifetime. Just do your work, okay? 600 years, that's kind of like, just forget about it. Just do your work now. That's the foundation for something that will come long after you're gone. So, because I think if we get caught up in finding the, coming to the solution, to that end point, you know, being the kind of architect of some new age or new religion, that's when we get into trouble, you know, and, and Jung definitely knew that at that point after the second world war, he knew the dangers of that. Right. So I think it was his way of saying, you know what, Max, this is, this is true. This is the way it's going, but like, don't worry about <laughs> getting to the end point, just do your job, build your little pillar in, in your community. That's your job. Mm. I think it's, so you really see, it's, a, it's, a, it's a humbling, humbling interpretation somehow, although prophetic. Yeah, but maybe also like kind of defensive against, uh, you know, getting too caught up in being the architect, you know. Um, that's great. Well, Jakob, this has been really fantastic. I know it's late where you are and uh, appreciate you uh, joining us and, and sharing some of what you've learned along the way. Now, um, please let people know the best place to go if they want to follow along with your work. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you. It's been great to talk uh, and uh, hope to have more conversations with you. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the best place to go would be cross.center, cross cross.center, or if you just Google psychology on the cross, you find the podcast. There's also going to be some seminars happening that could be interesting for a limited number of participants where I hope to be able to, to go a little bit deeper into these matters because... You know what we're discussing is a huge, huge topic. So, yeah, uh, yeah. What we what we what we had today was maybe a small, small bite. Oh, that's great. Uh, so, center, C E N T R E. The proper <laughs> way. The, the domain is cross dot center, cross dot center. But uh, maybe you spell, can put it in the notes. But is center spelled the American way or the proper way? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's C E N T E R. Oh, the American. E R in the, okay. <laughs> the American word. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, thanks so much. And do you have um, new episodes coming for Psychology in the Cross? Yeah, I'm having a conversation about Answer to Job that I'm just editing. I hope to release in the next week with, with the scholar Paul Bishop, who's been on there before. Oh, mm -hmm. spent, you know, yeah, probably the person in the world, I say, who spent most of time with that book, maybe. And uh, yeah, so that, that's going to be interesting. Great. Well, look forward to it. Please keep them coming. Yeah, likewise. All right. Well, take care and we'll talk soon. <laughs> take care. Stay in bye touch. Bye-bye. The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, aka Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.